Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. November 29th, 2020, episode 183. Polly Power, part two. Hello and welcome to the home of I am a beekeeper who's always talking about bees podcast. It's also known as the Beekeeper's Corner. I am your local but humble beekeeper, Kevin England, at your service. My hope is that you find joy and thanks in each and every episode and that you walk away with a little bit of something you were looking for when you dialed up the program. How's that for an attempt to try and open up the show in some sort of unique way? Sometimes I feel like a parody of myself, but I guess that's what happens after 10 years and 180 plus shows. I surely hope that you have been around for that long, that you have forgiven me for my annoying mannerisms, and that leads me to a curiosity. I sit and wonder, has anyone been listening from the true beginning? If you're a star pupil and you have been here since the beginning, do me a favor. Jot me off a note at kevin at bkcorner.org. I wonder if such a unicorn exists. I'm talking about someone that started out back in 2010 looking for a podcast and found me, and more importantly, if you're still listening, you somehow withstood all my Kevin moments and you're still coming back after all that I've shared. That would be, I guess, a unicorn indeed, for I am the only person I know that has been here for every episode. It's November. November in a year that keeps on giving. This year will be defined, I think, as everyone would guess, as the year of covid We've all been hunkered down in our residences, avoiding the virus and trying to remain active and energized about the world about us. I don't know about you and your personal experiences, but it feels like COVID is closing in. I'm finding more and more people that I come into contact with are experiencing direct contact with cases in their inner circles. And honestly, I think we're no different. It's kind of funny. On one hand, I want the world to open up. I want to see my beekeeping of friends, go to conferences, do things like that. And on the other hand, you find out that a neighbor, a teacher at a local school, a relative, maybe your niece or nephew, co-worker's son, they've, they've had it. It used to be, do you know anybody? No, I don't really know anybody. Well, I know somebody who knows somebody. Now, it's there. It's here right now. And it's only getting worse. The fall's been challenging, just like they predicted. And I guess it makes us more focused on our beekeeping operations at home, if we're thinking about it from a beekeeping lens, and seeking out outlets through Zoom, which is, I guess, the COVID darling solution. I have to ask, did you know about Zoom before this COVID thing? I knew about it. I happened to be in IT. So, of course, I, I always thought that Zoom calls pre-COVID, my experience with them, were more stable 
and higher quality than, say, the offerings in the marketplace, Skype and Google Hangouts. And I always wondered why they didn't ascend. What a blessing it's been for them. Good for them. They're everywhere. Bringing it back to beekeeping, beekeeping clubs, it seems, have especially jumped in and have put it to good use. And thankfully, while we're sequestered at home, there are tons and tons of options out there. I got a message from Russ Sprangle saying to me, you must be missing the boat. You said there weren't a lot of offerings. I've been in something just about every day of the week. And now that I start looking, yeah, stuff's all out of there. I guess you could tell that <laughs> while I love my wife and son who live with me, I miss communicating with others, so you hear the brunt of my musings. I suppose I should do what I'm supposed to do in the beginning, which is tell you what this show's about and get to business. So forgive me for my distractions, but hey, how you doing? I hope you're doing really well. I hope you're safe and well. Please do your best to stay that way. For this go-around, I have three roundtables and a topic, as well as a local hive report to throw in the pile. In the roundtables, follow up to critter controls in the apiary. Then I'm going to share a bomb of a recipe for a decadent, bittersweet chocolate and honey caramel tart that might just be one of the most successful desserts I've ever made. Roundtable number three, we want to say welcome back to some of our friends that we've been missing. And then for the topic, single topic of this episode, Poly Power Part 2. Follow up and tell you why the B-Box Polystyrene Hive 6-frame format is going to be the one that I am going to use for the next couple seasons and possibly switch to. I will tell you the reasons why and give you a little backstory. To end the episode, a few odds and ends occurring in the local hive report, discovery in the garage, and some of the final traces of management in the bee yard for 2020. I think that introduces what's on tap for this episode, so let's get started, shall we? Off to some roundtables. Roundtable number one, this one is a follow-up to You're in the Money, episode 180. I talked about pest deterrence, and I'm going to call this one critter control in the context of Russ Sprangle sent me a note about something I'd never heard about. Gopher smoke. You could buy these at box stores or on the internet. You buy these things that are equivalent to I don't know, stuff that you'd see sometimes for smoke bombs, smoke grenades. Uh, we've seen used them when we played paintball and things like that. But here you drop one of these in the hole, and they produce a gas when ignited that kills moles, gophers, woodchucks, squirrels nesting in the ground, which I'd never heard of, things like that. Moles, voles, rats. <laughs> So how about that? Go for smoke. Now, maybe we are missing the boat. As beekeepers, when I started looking up the go for smoke, I, I came upon two things as a follow-up. The first one was, somebody said, they simply use a beekeeping smoker. <laughs> they light the smoker, they find the hole, they puff and puff and puff until they smoke, see smoke coming out the other side. 
and then they plug the hole and they smoke it really well and it apparently dispatches whatever's inside there. It takes away the oxygen. Who knew we had the tool right in the toolbox the whole time? In follow-up to You're in the Money, somebody sent me a note and said they knew someone who regularly peed in a can, a watering can. And then what they did was walked around with the watering can and watered the property. And lo and behold, in short order, all the critters went away. They just did this regularly whenever they were outside. So you're in the money. In that case, you really are in the money. You can use human urine to water your grass. <laughs> Nobody will be the wiser. You don't have to stand out there and, you know, do your business. I don't know about peeing into the water. Yeah, let me not go there. But yeah, a follow-up to you're in the money from episode 180. That's a quick one. But thanks, Russ, for the gopher smoke thing. I had never heard about it. And if you look up gopher smoke on Amazon, you'll find gopher smoke bombs. It's a bunch of different form factors for those. Roundtable number two, I call this one Dream Realized. I've had this vision of making a dessert tart for a long time. And for some reason, it turned out that this ended up being the tryout for Thanksgiving. We didn't make apple pie or pumpkin pie. I made this tart. It's a honey caramel bittersweet chocolate tart. And given the title, it came out absolutely perfect. I'm going to tell you the recipe here, and I would highly encourage you that if you have that special occasion where you want to try this out, this is going to be showcase. It's amazing. You start with a tart pan and tart dough that you have to bake ahead of time. You're going to start with the dough first, and you build this in layers. In an electric mixer, you combine butter, confectioner's sugar, and blend it until it's smooth. It's one stick of butter and a half cup of confectioner's sugar. You can add a quarter cup of unsweetened cocoa to it if you want the dough to be chocolatey. But I like the dough to be blonde in color. It made a good contrast to the dark chocolate that I'm going to use later and the honey caramel, which is golden brown, of course. Once you have those two things mixed, you add one large egg yolk, three-quarter teaspoon vanilla extract, and a cup and a quarter of all-purpose flour, and you whiz that around until it becomes combined. It looks something like dough. When you get it all done, you dump it out of the mixer into the tart pan, and you just use your fingers and press it all out until it's flat, level, and it comes up the sides the way it should in a typical tart dough. After you're done with that, you're going to bake it in a 350 degree oven for 15 minutes. Now, the way they say to do it is to line it with foil and put in beads or beans to weight it down. And then after 15 minutes, you pull that out. I put a layer of foil down and put a pie plate in top of it. And when I pulled the pie plate, all the dough stuck to the foil and ended up like pulling off whatever stuck to the foil and pressing it back down in there. And then I put it back in and baked it for another 15 minutes and it was perfect. It was golden brown. I don't know about the whole pie weight foil thing, but in the end it came out well. And what you're going to do is bake this to the point where it's consume, consumable. 
Uh, you're not going to bake the thing other than the, this particular blind bake, and that's it. Once you bring the tart out of the oven, just let it cool off. It doesn't have to cool all the way, but they, they tell you to put it in the fridge. I just let it cool down to room temperature. And I did that while I was making the honey caramel. You have the option of making honey caramel to put the second layer or chocolate. You can interchange them. I like the honey caramel right on the tart and the chocolate on the top. So for the honey caramel, two cups of honey and three quarters cup heavy cream. Put that in a pot. You want a tall pot because it's going to bubble up. You're going to boil that and you're going to put a thermometer in until it gets to be 240 to 245 degrees. Once you get it to 245, which is where I cooked it to, I pulled it off the heat and I added the final two ingredients, which is a half cup of unsalted butter, one stick, and a pinch of salt. If you're using regular salted butter, you don't have to do it. And honestly, I like a pinch of salt anyway. When the honey caramel is all combined, you could take that and pour that into the tart shell. And it levels itself out and you put that in the fridge and let it cool. Wait about an hour or so and the caramel will set. It won't be hot and runny. It'll set firm. Then you put the chocolate glaze on the top. For the chocolate glaze, what I did was I used two three-ounce-ish bars of Ghirardelli chocolate. I bought one bar that's 3.17 ounces. It's just the way it is when you buy chocolate. Uh, some the, the weights vary of the actual bar. This was 86% cacao. And then the second bar was... 3.5 ounces of 72%. I chopped those up until they were fine pieces. And I set them in a large bowl. Then I took a half cup of heavy cream and I brought it to the boil. Once it was to the boil, I poured it over the chocolate and stirred it in until the chocolate was melted. And then I took the chocolate mixture when it was all combined and poured it over top of the honey caramel and let it level out. It leveled itself out. You can help it if you need to. After you're done with that, you could take a pinch of sea salt if you're interested and just pinch around and let it set. I didn't bother. I just put the chocolate on and then I put it back in the fridge and I let it cool overnight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you cut this thing, it is so rich, as you can imagine, with all that cream and chocolate flavor and the high amount of sugar from the honey. The crispness of the tart was perfect. It is it is the most amazing decadent dessert. Now, if you really wanted to amp this up, maybe you can cut small pecans or something to mix in the chocolate or however you want to do it. Uh, they'd say you can take, to make it look pretty, cocoa powder and powder the top to make it more appealing. But yeah, if you think about the way you eat a normal pie, the slice that you cut, if you cut a slice that big, you'd be on overload. So when you cut these, cut them smaller. And I'm telling you, spectacular, amazing, dreamworthy. Every bite you have is just like, oh, yeah, this is good. <laughs> Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you make this tart. Yeah.
<laughs> so the recipe for honey caramel bittersweet chocolate tart that will knock your socks off. Just amazing. Round table number three, call this one Our Friends Return. I am so happy to see that the Beehive Jive podcast put out an episode. Paul and Tracy from London area put out Lockdown Beekeeping. That's their latest episode. They've been kind of off mic for a while. I knew that uh, Paul had some medical problems and he talks about that. Um, but just listening to the episode, it's good to hear their banter back in the airwaves again. Ironically, uh, I'm going to talk about polyhives, and Paul talks about polyhives quite a bit in that episode. And it never struck me to give him a call and see what kind of poly experience he has as I review it. But uh, if you look on their blog, there is a polystyrene nuke that is one of Paul's favorite. He talks about it all the time. And if you've been following this topic of interest lately, you can go there and see that he wrote uh, some musings about his experience with that. I find it comforting to know that Tracy helped Paul out in his times of need and worked with his hives. <laughs> I find it kind of funny that she made a lot of honey. <laughs> I met Tracy when I was in London and I get the sense that she's no nonsense and I'm also uh, happy to hear that her hives are doing well. So, you know, I won't give away all the content that they have, just a taste for it. You can find their website, thebeehivejive.com. Not to be confused with the hive jive that comes out of Texas podcast. This is the one from London. Give them a listen. And, uh, hey, Paul and Tracy, welcome back. Glad to have a recording from you guys. And I hope you're all doing well over there in COVID land for the UK. Sounds like you're having an interesting go of it there. Time to hit the topics. I'm going to go to the back of the front of the book. I have one topic prepared, and I do want to get to a local hive report, and I suspect that this is going to take a little bit. So I've really only prepared one topic, but I think it's going to be a good one. I call this one Poly Power Part 2. My hope is with this topic, not to wear you out on this subject, but if you know me, I've probably gone too far with what I prepared. But que sera, sera. Polypower Part 1 from Episode 182 was fairly extensive, and I'm hoping that I laid enough groundwork for me to use that to my advantage as a jump-off point for my strategies and rationale for Part 2. I think it's clear by this point that I've enjoyed my 10-frame setup but you might have gathered by now that my notion is to push forward with a six-frame variation of my polyhive. The reasons are simple and pragmatic, at least to me they are. To expand on that, the single most important reason would be biology and weight. Uh, but Kevin, that's two. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you see, I have a problem. On one hand, I want to have a better hive for my colonies from a biology standpoint. And on the other, I want less weight. The single reason is biology, but the weight aspect is so pivotal, but they can't be left aside. To start the discussion, if you missed the last episode, I will reiterate 
that I've been a strong proponent of the B-Box brand polystyrene hive that I have in service. For my operation, I have always considered the polystyrene hive as an alternative hive format. This perspective is reasonable because conventional beekeeping in the U.S. demonstrates that beekeepers here use wooden Langstroth hives. I don't know if my changeover to poly hives is going to make me an unconventional beekeeper. I guess time will tell. Perhaps these very episodes will contribute to a possible groundswell for hobbyists to switch to poly over time. I can't be the only one that has been employing these solutions and enjoying them. I'm just giving a voice to them. And I have noticed that poly hives are not as uncommon as they used to be. To start off, I want to talk about marketplace offerings. Before I discuss my reasons, I will say that there's other equipment in the marketplace. This is something that I didn't fit in the time frame I had for the last episode, and I need to cover it a little bit. My recent B-Box equipment brand purchase came from Blue Sky Bee Supply. My original hive, the 10 frame one, came from Paradise Honey. It's found on the web at paradisehoney.net. I do not know this is a fact, but I do think that Paradise was the first one to offer the brand in the U.S. Now, there might be other suppliers of the B-Box brand in the U.S., but they're the only two that I know of. And both of them offer the 10-frame and the 6-frame versions of the equipment. It seems to me that Paradise has switched and they ship bigger bulk, like on a pallet. I don't know if you, you think you have to call them directly and ask them to buy individual hives. Blue Sky, you can order a hive kit. And in addition, they have a good offering of accessories like feeders and spare parts. B-Box Hive Equipment is made in Finland, and it literally has Finland, the word, embossed on several of the panels. Now, I know there's a competitor company in the U.S. called Superior Bee that's making a polystyrene hive, and their equipment is manufactured in the United States. Visually, the Superior brand equipment is really really like the bee box. The Superior Beehive design appears to borrow so many design clues from the bee box that it makes me wonder if Superior licensed the design from Finland. But to be clear, there are subtle visual differences when I look at their equipment on the website. The handhold designs and Superior's equipment are different, and it looks like the sides are full width all the way through. So it's clear they're not identical. However, when it comes to the plastic parts and the roof design and the bottom board design, they seem to be so close that one could believe that the hives would mate up with the B-Box equipment. I guess what I'm saying is that they are so similar in dimension and interchangeable, but it's not clear. I almost have a notion to buy a superior box just to see whether they are compatible or not. Another well-known polystyrene hive provider in the marketplace is Lysen. I'm positive that the Lysen brand is well-established in Europe, being based in Poland, but their products are not as well-known in the U.S. as are conventional brands. Lysen's been offering a different take on the polyhive for a few years. 
something of a squarish box with metal clasps that hold them together. To my eye, the design aesthetics with the hive always seemed a bit odd or off-putting to me. But I do know that some of the European designs for hives use these metal clasps like you would see on a, I don't know, trunk, you know, that in the old times that they would ship with. And I saw metal clasps holding hives together like the Dadon Blot out of Italy in some of the supply houses that I visited when I was over there. Now, I noticed recently that Lysen reformulated their product line for polyhives. And like the superior hive described earlier, their new polystyrene hive seems to have maybe taken some clues from the bee box. Uh, Kevin Mung. From the ones I've seen in the shows, I think Lysen makes some of the nicest extractor equipment, honey extraction equipment in the marketplace. I'm not talking about poly, but just what I know about Lysen. And if I were ever to decide to pull the trigger, I know that Maxant and others make these, but I really think that I might buy a Lysen one. I was so close to buying one just a couple years ago, and that turned me on to the Lysen brand. And then when I got interested in polystyrene hives, I started to look over and see what Lysen has and has kept tabs on it. End of Kevin moment. Now, it should be noted that if you're a European beekeeper, you can buy poly equipment from Lysen in either the Dedant, Dedant Blot, or Langstroth form factors. Now, one last major provider of hives, poly hives, that I'm aware of is Honeypaw. P-A-W, Honeypaw. In looking what they have to offer on their website, it looks as though they have thought through the engineering in a novel way. For example, they showcase two nuke boxes side by side sitting on a bottom board and the full-size hot box sits on top of it and it all kind of mates up. I think that's kind of cool. I listened to Stuart Spinks. Beekeeping in a minute. Highly recommend that podcast. And Stuart has been working with Honeypaw and trying out their polystyrene hives. On that end, and this is not a dig on Stuart, I love Stuart's stuff, but I'm not sponsored by, nor do I get any benefit of talking about these companies. I just think it's reasonable in covering this stuff to tell you where you can find things about these hives so that you can go review what's offered if you so desire. And I think I'll have a link to some of these Polyhive Marketplace offerings in the show notes. And if you know of any that I didn't mention that should be considered please do me a favor and share in return. My email address is kevin at bkcorner.org. There's one aside for my friends listening who use hive designs that are not Langstroth. I mentioned that hives are available in British National, Dadon, Dadon Blanc, and possibly others. Bee Equipment is the company. Bee Equipment. It's b-equipment.co co.uk if you surf that website from the u.s they have a u.s variation i get so excited looking at all that stuff until i put something in the cart and realize how much it would cost to ship it over here <laughs> i just did that recently i'm on a quest and here's another kevin moment if you know anybody in the united states who creates a british national hive 
or a Dedant or Dedant Blot Hive in woodenware or even poly, please let me know. I'm trying to find that. I want to try those hives. So if you know where I can get one where I don't have to pay $400 shipping. So as you would imagine, all these hives are for sale in the marketplace and you know where you can go browse for them. I want to turn to the polystyrene substrate. Before one would consider polystyrene hives, one has to say, is it safe and is it practical? Now, I'm not a material scientist, and there are a few things to learn even when discussing it in a superficial way that might impact your decision. The first thing is polystyrene used for beehives is made of food-grade materials. Given their compact exterior, they are easily cleaned and they can be effectively sterilized with washing soda solution and other materials. They also do fine with chemical treatments that you might use for, say, varroa mites, but they're susceptible to some solvents. I, I've heard different things like people make up fume pads or whatever, and they use solvents in work or um, essential oils, possibly. But I don't think there's a lot of that going on for us, so I really don't feel like that should be a problem. To the format of the polystyrene that's used for these hives, it's referred to as expanded polystyrene, or EPS. And it has a designation of density, the particular B-Box brand I'm talking about, 100 kg slash M3. If I understand what that means, and trust me when I say this, my understanding's just a touch dodgy, <laughs> the 100 kilograms means that it's the weight of a cubic meter of foam. It's going to weigh 100 kilograms. And the M3 in the 100 kilograms slash M3 number represents stiffness in some form. Now, what's interesting is I've done some research and I've heard the number represents how much the weight of the foam can handle before it depresses or breaks. I don't know which one of those is right, the, the density weight or the, the strength weight. Material science aside, it's EPS and it's proven fit for purposes. The poly is nothing like conventional styrofoam, which has, you know, a lot of air inside of it. This foam is not squishy in any way. To illustrate that in something you could possibly connect with, many beekeepers are familiar with the pink and green house foam that you can buy in sheets at a box store. This is what is commonly used as a substrate for wrapping hives. I think the designator for that is XPS foam. This stuff is pretty rigid, but I wouldn't describe it as durable. If you squeeze that, it's going to pinch like you would think styrofoam would. The poly material used for making beehives is 20 times denser than the box store stuff. Why we want to use polystyrene? Well, of course, one of the main things is its insulative properties. The polystyrene R factor, meaning its ability to insulate, varies by manufacturer, but is far superior to wood equipment in every way. True to that, poly will not absorb or hold on to moisture and it's not susceptible for losing insulative properties like wood 
which loses its R factor when it gets wet. Poly does not rot. It doesn't attract wood-bearing pests. It can be painted with the most conventional exterior-based paints, but obviously, as noted, you shouldn't use solvent-based paints. It doesn't shrink. It doesn't swell. And if you're of the mindset, you can actually buy materials to patch them if they become damaged. Polystyrene is inert, and thus far it has been reported that conventional chemical treatments, things that we use like Formic Pro, Oxalic, and other things, show no ill effects. Oxalic acid vaporization, Formic Acid, thymol, other marketplaces, they're just not a problem. Now, I said before, you should be careful of some forms of essential oils with solvents, because that can break it down. And in Paul's commentary about his polyhives, he talked about melting one of his hives with essential oil treatment on the beehive jive. I would say you can go down the path of suitability of the substrate, but I would simply look at the fact that these hives have been in widespread continuous use for decades. And I have never heard of any deleterious effects or warnings when it comes to housing colonies and polystyrene hive equipment and consuming honey that was extracted from poly boxes or any effects to the wax that the bees build inside a polyhive. So finally, and I'm happy to say this, all the preambles out of the way, we can turn our attention to the plan, which is really what I wanted to talk about here. Six frame polyhives are the way to go. My name is Kevin England, and I approve this message. Yeah, all kidding aside, since we just cleared the election here in the United States, I want you to understand that before I start out, what I'm about to say is kind of fraught with peril. And it can be noted for the record that I have all of about three months' experience with keeping bees in six-frame polystyrene hives. It could turn out like a romantic relationship going wrong. In the beginning, we'd be all googly-eyed, but in the end, it might not work out. I do have confidence, however, that what I'm going to say and what I'm doing is honestly not that risky. If you think about taking on risk. It's an educated risk. And I hope you think me as educated. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of can draw this analogy. If you're a car manufacturer and you have a really good model, one of your best sellers, you face a supreme challenge in every few years because vehicle design evolves and there's an anticipation that not only Will you keep up with the major model that you have? You will surpass and invent the next best thing. And it is that, in part, which keeps you, as a consumer, coming back to that particular brand. Now, the bad news for them is that car companies tend to have loyalty, but nothing wrecks loyalty more than when they screw up something that had the it factor. Especially when, you know, in a car appearance, safety, reliability, something's wrong. So the risk is enormous. In our analogy, we're going from a tried-and-true, proven Langstroth wooden format to something that seems exotic, polystyrene hives that you can't literally go down to your local bee supply and buy. Still, people line up when the new models of cars come out and are presented, 
and they generally don't concern themselves with the purchase, even in a redesign year. There used to be this recommendation, never buy the first year of a car. But nowadays, people do it all the time because underneath the science and the vehicle model and the platform has good bones. What I've observed with my six-frame polystyrene hives is that by all appearances, it has the good bones that I've come to appreciate with my 10-frame hive. But it's going in a direction more suitable to beekeeping that suits me. So at the risk of being repetitive, the box design and all the design cues that I loved in the big hive, they're still there. But what's cool is with the six-frame format, I think there's even more thoughtful design elements to provide utility for my operation, and I'll talk about that. So the six-frame hive is the one we wanted, or at the minimum, the hive that I wanted. What do I want in a hive? The premise here is a hobbyist hive. What am I talking about when I make that declaration? For what I want, I'll take you back to the notion in the last episode that a wooden 10 frame Langstroth hive, their DNA, their architectural principles were based upon a commercial aspect of beekeeping. The utility of their modular design coupled with the space allocation made the capacity to hold large colonies on high. It was something that was desired in the commercial realm. For a hobbyist, maybe not so much. Now the funny thing is, for the commercial side, wooden hives can be palletized, shipped, split, exchanged, expanded, and all the things that are prerequisites for hive equipment in a commercial operation. Commercial beekeepers benefit from the supreme workforces, and compared to nature, conventional wooden equipment volume is supersized. As a hobbyist, we simply don't need supersized. And in this day and age of varroa mite infestations, as I've talked about on the last episode, I think it might actually be working against us. I've often held the notion that we hobbyists need a smaller hive. For a long time, I thought it might be the eight-frame hive, and I've been trying one of those. A similar but different take is going in the direction of smaller solution that some people are trying, not eight frame, all medium hives. In the 10 frame format, the all medium still has the potential to host the same amount of bees in volume, but on a box by box, which is how you interact with the components of the hive, the weight is lighter. So some people like those. I don't know if there's a better trade-off to say an all medium hive is better than an eight frame hive. I'm not sure. Now, I've run all medium hives, and I simply don't like them. And I don't think they're a permanent fix. That's blasphemy to some, and I know a lot of people like them, but most of them do it for the weight. But I could talk about some pros to the setup, but the 10-frame width is not the way to go, and I'll unpack that later. One con that I'll spend some time for all mediums is that I don't like that the bees' comb faces are broken up. They're broken up through bottom and top bars through the stack. It was only until I got more experience with European hives, like my Lane's hive, where I see one long contiguous face that this came to light. 
So let me describe this. My Lanes Hive has frames that employ a top bar that's shorter in length than a conventional Langstroth, but the side bars are longer. You end up with a frame that is narrower from side to side, but deeper. And the bees build comb that's taller and more contiguous from the top of the frame to the bottom bar. Now look, bees are malleable, but I would think they'd be better suited to have a format which runs top to bottom and the medium hive, it doesn't do that. The medium hive from the roof to the floor has a top bar, short vertical run of comb, bottom bar, top bar, short run of vertical comb, bottom bar, top bar, short run of vertical comb, bottom bar, and such. In my estimation here, the lands hive with one long stretch of comb is far better for the bees. Just a personal opinion. In contrast, an eight-frame deep wooden box is actually not that bad. It has the ability to use deep box hive body. But if you're, you know, not looking for the volume required for that big commercial operation supersize, then you do get a weight savings of two frames. So I actually prefer the eight-frame hive that I have over my all-medium hive. But yet, I'm going to poly. So what's so good or superior about a six-frame poly in contrast to an eight-frame Langstroth? It's two key factors. Weight is one, and the envelope that the environment makes is the other. Uh, terms. Envelope and environment. Say with me now. Our wood hives are a compromise. Say it. You know it, I know it, we all know it. <laughs> They're a balance of utility and especially constrained to our ability to lift things. I want you to picture this. If we humans were 50% or 100% stronger on average as a species, if lifting heavy weights were not a factor, we would probably be using two to three inch wood in our boxes to get the insulation. However, if wood was not so simple for every person to interact with, mankind has completely figured out how to shape, assemble, obtain, source, wood. If that wasn't true, if it wasn't the most universally accessible substrate, we'd probably consider other materials. Unlike wood, we can't head to our local box store to buy EPS polystyrene raw materials. They're engineered, and that makes them unapproachable to the common person. My supposition is, when considered in contrast of what poly has to offer, it's not the same as good enough as perfect, which is the way the wood world works. Wood is simply adequate. If adequate's good enough, then fine, but it seems to me that quite a few hobbyists are tinkering with our equipment because it's lacking. How? We're insulating our roofs. We're wrapping our hives in tar paper. Heck, we're even affixing foam to the exteriors in a quest to compensate for wood. And by the way, that's all work and expense. So my ploy is, why be adequate when you can have poly? Allow material science to be the solution. We use material science in our lives everywhere we go. 
you think about the changes our homes our clothing our automobiles so why not our hives weight aside the largest factor that piques the interest of inquisitive beekeepers about poly is thermoregulation or said more simply the insulated properties of polystyrene are compelling i have seen some rather telling I'm using air quotes, conversations <laughs> around how colonies manage themselves as it relates to temperature control inside the hive. Sermons and, and preaching and pandering and all that other stuff. I personally never enter into those debates. I like reading them. It's like a tennis match. Oh, that's a good point. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm, didn't think about that, right? But in the end, I have my own opinion. And I never enter into those debates because I'm just not qualified. I only have my real-world observations and beliefs that convince me I'm heading in direction, but I'm still experimenting. In the cold, the bees do not heat the inside of the hive. That's one common misconception, is that bees can generate enough heat like a heat source that the entire interior is heated. I know that the ambient temperature inside the hive does not equal whatever the cluster heat is. However, it does impact the amount of energy the bees need to apply to maintain the temperature of the cluster. The colder the air is inside the hive, the more the energy they have to expend to keep the colony cluster a certain temperature. And, and in generating heat. I want you to picture something. If the bees were exposed to the outside, meaning they're not in a vessel or a container, suppose they're hanging from a limb of a tree, which, you know, you see sometimes. If we consider the temperature to be 10 degrees Fahrenheit, it stands to reason that the bees in that cluster would have to work harder to reach that optimal temperature when compared to a day where it was 30 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 20 degrees warmer. Now, on the inside of the hive, because it's literally connected to the outdoors through any openings, and all hives have a minimum hive entrance, of course, and it's open so that there's air movement, a hive would have the temperature inside that's the same temperature as the outside. Now, I'm talking about an empty hive equipment box. Empty. No bees inside. Same temperature. Now you put a cluster of bees inside that's generating heat to stay warm. And you could picture that some of the heat they give off would heat the inside of the chamber. The heat dissipates through a wooden hive. Through it. And what is given off the cluster is not enough heat to heat the interior to a balmy temperature. And in colder temperatures, it's more likely that the bees heat the cluster. The cluster is surrounded by an envelope of heat that the cluster is giving off. And then from there, the heat dissipates to the ambient air inside the hive, which is not much different from the actual ambient air outside the hive. 
this is how I always envision it, right? You have the cluster, it has major heat, it has an envelope around it, which is a little bit warmer, and then it dissipates into the ambient temperature before it exits through the woodenware. This means that that ambient temperature is theoretically a little bit higher than the, hair, than the air temperature outside the hive. But because wood leaks that residual heat it, and it has such a low insulative value, it's not that big. Now, when you think about the R factor, as we've already stated, being higher in a polystyrene time, it's possible that more of that heat gets retained inside. And that could mean that some of that ambient air inside the hive is being warmed. I go back to my analogy before, 10 degrees versus 30 degrees. If the ambient temperature inside is a little bit warmer, then they probably have to do less work over a span of time to keep the cluster warm. Now it's said as a general rule of thumb that bees cluster around 45 degrees. Your mileage may vary on that, but let's go with that as a rule of thumb. So anything lower than 45 degrees and the bees are expending energy to stay warm on the cluster. As we establish, the colder the air gets, the more energy they have to burn in order to generate that heat. And like our houses, if the insulated properties are higher, they use less fuel. Now at some point I hope to have Doug Potter on the show. He sent me a comparison of wooden hives versus poly hives and the amount of food they consume through weighing the hives. And there's, there's no comparison. Poly hives stayed heavier throughout the winter and consumed, I'm presuming, less food. And we'll let Doug talk about that if I can get him to come in on the show. In certain circumstances, the change of temperature is more constant inside the polyhive. Especially with bee box poly and its sealed roof and its closed down entrance. This is stability. I hinted at that before, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, I want to talk about the flip side of that, right? We've been talking about generating heat and keeping warm. The state of the interior when... Yeah, think about super, super hot days outside. 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. What's going on inside the hive? Once the temperature exceeds what they want to keep the colony at, they have to cool. If I say it's 100 plus outside, then the colony can move hot air out of the colony through passive evaporation. As they remove heat, you would hope that the heat is not penetrating through the wood like it is in a wooden hive, when the sun's shining directly on it, and that creates more work for them to get that heat out. If you have polystyrene, which is insulative inside and out, meaning air pushing in and air coming out, I would think that they'd be able to maintain more stable. And contrary to what we think, they would bake inside a hive that's polystyrene. I think it's the other way around. I think if they're effective at cooling it and they can control the airflow out by fanning and doing whatever they do, Passive evaporation will cool the chamber off and the sun will not penetrate the polystyrene and heat the chamber up and work against them. 
So I think you're getting the picture that mentally to me, polystyrene high, it excels in these conditions. When the temperature swings high to low to high to low, the air temperature variation to ambient air is in control of the bees because they have an isolated chamber inside when the thing is sealed, which is a one of the properties of a bee box. The roof sits down tight and the only opening is the front entrance. There is no ventilation. In the end, I think you could tell, I envision that the insulated properties of poly are superior. The only way to know that is to actually use the hive. Wow. I have a lot of passion about that. Now I want to talk about the six-frame form factor. I want to talk about the benefits of going to that form factor and why. I feel like the future success of the six-frame form factor by B-Box is serendipitous. I put money down that the manufacturers were on a different trajectory than what I'm thinking when they created this thing. I imagine their conversation went something like this. Well, we got our 10-frame box. You know what else we're going to need? They're going to want a nuke. Yeah, we're going to have to have an add a, a nuke to our line. And you know, while we're making a nuke, let's make it six frame because we could split it right down the middle and make a queen castle too. As to my way of thinking, the nuke and queen castle capabilities that the designers made are a bonus. But nuke is conventionally a stopping point on the way to a full-size hive, right? You build a nuke and then you move it to a full-size hive. I intend to experiment with the premise that with its perceived balance of size, weight, and management practice options, the six-frame form factor is the poly-permanent path to keeping bees. I mean, those notions, size, weight, management practices, I, I got to talk about that. First off, the size. It turns out it fits my newfound requirements. I'm thinking we need to keep our hive smaller, and it so happens that this six-frame configuration is the ideal size. So how's that for happenstance? Why move to a smaller box? I think it provides efficiency for the colony, and I think it's more in line with nature. I've long thought that a 10-frame wide hive body is too large. Yeah, the nest can be situated in the midst of a 10-frame, but the truth of the matter is what I've observed in my 10-frame Langstroth boxes is that the outside areas, frames 1, 2, maybe 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, depending on where the colony is, are su superfluous? <laughs> superfluous undesirable. I'm going to suggest a word that plays into an observation about bees. It's compact. I've learned over time that if you want a colony to operate in an optimal way, you got to keep them in equipment that is commensurate to the size of the colony. If you had a larger colony in two boxes, two deep boxes, and something happened that resulted in them becoming a smaller colony, like they swarmed. You might want to get rid of one of the boxes. 
I would suggest that if you compact them down and allowed them to recover, they would be better if they were placed in one box, recovered till they filled that box, and then you add the second. If you leave them to recover in two deeps, I don't think they're going to recover as fast. That's my experience. I think it has to do with what we talked about a moment ago, thermodynamics and how they control the interior. And I really have come to learn that the size of the chamber you provide them should be in line with the size of the colony. So in this concept, more space is not better. I find that moderate to large hives employ something I will label as the chimney effect. And small colonies, they just simply struggle in this space. I've observed that a full-size colony, one that builds a nest in two 10-frame deeps, tends to build out the center mass and... The outside frames are lackluster. That's the essence of the chimney effect that I've given the label to. The center is always strong and the outside, not so much. Now, if that colony happens to grow to a supreme colony, then yeah, they'll use the entire space. But not every hive grows to be a supreme colony. So if not every hive is a supreme colony, then what if we simply decided to provide them the compact space to house the colony between the walls of the hive? You know what that is? A chimney effect hive fits perfect in a six frame box. How elegant is that, right? If they're not using frame one and two and nine and 10, just give them the six in the middle. How many frames do you really need in a hive? I've discovered that two poly deeps, a six frame over a six frame stack at 12 frames is nice. It results in a reasonably sized colony. And if you've ever kept bees in nucleus colonies, you probably know that these smaller combinations are easier to work with, easier to find the queen, easier to assess and feed and all of these things. Now, you have a 6 over 6, 12 frames is nice. Maybe the colony takes off and you need a little more room. Make it 3 deeps. 6 over 6 over 6 combo. 18 frames, really enticing. If they happen to grow bigger than that, then guess what? They're heading to supreme territory, and I, in my management practice, will make plans to split them off before they get there. And incidentally... If the colony grows during the nectar flow, that should happen right about the time I'll be rearing queens and have queens to put in that split. You know what that hive box is when I want to split it off? A nuke. <laughs> it's right on a bottom board. and becomes a nuke. Maybe that colony's doing great. It built out three boxes, six over six over six, and I want to look at honey production. I could take all those frames and move them to a 10 frame poly. That's an option. Or quite truthfully, just put another six frame box on top. I know that a stack of four of these, which I ran this summer, is still manageable. Now look, admittedly, I'm new to this. And these thoughts are my hypothesis going into the situation. Time's going to tell whether this is the optimal setup. 
But knowing what I know now, I think chamber size for the colony is perfect. I think they're going to have control of the interior without waste, and it's coupled with weight advantages that make this desirable combination for me, the beekeeper. So I talked about size, now it leads me to weight, the second of three factors I'm in the midst of articulating. On this show, I've talked about the known quotient that beekeeping provides some inherent risk of injury because of weight. Moving heavy boxes, twisting while carrying the weight, the awkwardness of holding the weight away from your body, it's just not ideal. It makes us humans prone to injury. The woodenware sizes, as they've evolved in the industry, are the best balance compromise-wise, but still there are times when a fully loaded box is at the upper threshold of the weight someone can handle. And, I say this with humility, even someone as big and strong as me struggles with it. I'm no Atlas, not by any stretch, but I'm somewhat muscular. And I just can't imagine what it's like if you're not accustomed to lifting weights or small in stature. I've been on enough bee meetings and other things and witnessed people that are small in stature and some of them that are less fit and they struggle. The fact of the matter is there are simply times when Langstroth equipment in its industrial nature, it just becomes uncomfortably heavy. Polystyrene, in contrast, is still kind of heavy. It's not super lightweight like a styrofoam, but it is lighter overall. To prove that, for the sake of this topic, I went out and weighed some of my equipment. This is what I came up with. A 10-frame wooden box is 8.4 pounds. That is no frames, no equipment, just the box itself. In contrast, the 10-frame poly box is 4.8 pounds. So 8.4 to 4.8. An 8-frame wooden box is 7.4 pounds. It's one pound less than a 10-frame wooden. A 5-frame nuke box is about 7 pounds. Now, that kind of perplexes me. You would think that if a 5-frame nuke is half the size of a 10-frame, it would be half the weight. That's not how it worked. That's not what my scale told me. Now, the 5-frame box that I measured was one of my homemade ones. It was wood that I got from my sign shop that I used to run eons ago. And maybe the density of that particular wood is different from commercial pine. I can't explain why a 10 frame box is 8.4 and a five frame is seven pounds, but that's the way the world works. To not lose track of where the weights are, a six frame poly weighs in at 4.2 pounds. Now, what's interesting about that is the 10-frame poly was 4.8, and the 6-frame poly was 4.2. I don't know how to reconcile that. Now, let me tell you about the unscientific method. I stood on my bathroom scale, weighed myself, and then I grabbed the box and jumped back on the scale and weighed the difference. I generally think my bathroom scale is pretty accurate, but 
those are the weights that I came out. Now the 8-frame wooden hive idea is close, but sometimes I observe that like the 10-frame hive, the bees don't use the outer frames. And then if you think about an 8-frame hive, it can be just as heavy sometimes. So the differences in the substrates are not earth shattering, but I think every little bit helps. And you can tell that the polystyrene boxes themselves shave off weight. Where the real savings comes from is shedding the number of frames in a box. A six frame poly is four frames, four frames less than 10 frames. And if you weigh, let's talk about the heaviest thing that a frame could be if it's full of honey capped honey. If you weigh a frame of capped honey, the general rule of thumb is it's about 10 pounds, 6 to 10 pounds, depending on what you believe. If you're taking four frames out at 6 to 10 pounds, that's 24 to 40 pounds a box. That's substantial weight. Uh, Kevin moment. You know, if I'm thinking about this out loud while I'm recording this, thinking woodenware varies. The weights fluctuate. I wonder if the woodenware that I measured here in mid-November on a bone-dry winter day, I wonder how much of a difference it would be if it was a humid summer day, because you know that the wood's going to absorb some of the water. Maybe they could have weighed a little bit more, probably only a couple tenths of a pound or whatever, but that's interesting. You know the polystyrene's not going to hold any moisture. What they weigh today is probably what they weigh in July in the middle of August. End of Kevin moment. I want you to put this in some perspective. Think about the weight you carry on your body. In the case of a 10-frame form factor, it's about a 5-pound difference between the box in wood and the box in polystyrene. I don't know about you, but I'd like to shed five pounds about right now. So less weight, better insulation. What's not to love about that? We're exploring three factors. The last one is management. It might end up being more management for me. I'm going to say that up front. To keep a colony constrained to a smaller six-frame format, but... And here's the payoff. I just talked about Supreme Hives in the last episode, and this configuration is going to force me to update my management style. I'm going to let a colony occupy three brood boxes. And if the brood gets bigger than that, I'm going to break it up. That's what I want to do in the future. doesn't matter whether it's in 10-frame equipment, woodenware, or 6-frame poly boxes. Now, if I want honey production, I can have that too in the form of a six-frame deep on top of the stack. And if I get a six over six over six over six stacked four high, I found out this summer that it's still manageable. I purposely let a colony get to three deeps for the brood chamber and one box for honey to get an impression of that this summer. The box, top honey box, was completely full from one wall to the other. And it was fun. I had no problem lifting it off the top. 
In fact, and I don't know whether this is my serendipity, when I pulled that polystyrene hive, I didn't think that the thing was full. I had to literally pull the frames out to determine whether they were all capped honey. Now I think a five stack would surely be a little tall and possibly the limit. And I'm guessing you could go six high, but to me, that's probably going to end up being a little unstable and it's going to require a ladder. So five, if on my hive stand, the way I have them, and it all depends on how you have your hive set up, five boxes put the top of the stack, meaning the top edge of the fifth box at eye level or forehead level. And six boxes would be literally, quite honestly, over my head and what supported that. The good news is, given there are only six frames, even if that top six frame box is full of capped honey, the weight's still manageable. It's often repeated that a 10 frame medium wood Langstroth box would weigh in around 70 pounds. My guess is that's a fat box crammed with a lot of honey. It's probably more like 60 pounds and 70 is bragging. It is said that a full size of capped honey in a deep box, full-size frame capped on both sides, is 10 to 11 pounds. If the six-frame poly box, box hive equipment weighs four pounds, that means for a six-frame deep with honey at 10 pounds apiece, that's pretty close in comparison to what a medium super would be. At 10 pounds that's 60 plus 4, 64 pounds. The funnier thing about it is when you lift that box, it feels different because it's not so wide and away from your body. Looking at it from another perspective, I could say that all deep equipment for honey production is enticing. It's an interesting proposition, isn't it? Maybe you're not seeing the advantage. Think about this. Every frame you put in the extractor per frame holds more honey in comparison to using all mediums for your honey supers. That would net out to a shorter time loading and unloading the extractor because each frame holds pound for pound more honey when using deep frames versus medium. I hope that translated, but I think it tells you that I've been contemplating all the different angles of the switchover. The density of what's being extracted means less time spent rotating out the honey, and it's an added efficiency. In the end, I find six frame deep boxes on top of the stack to get heavy, if that's what I find. I do let it get four and five high or six high or whatever it is. And I say, this is not for me. You know what I can do? I have a contingency. I could buy six frame medium polystyrene boxes because yes, they offer them. So you could have Six over six over six in deep format and mediums on top of that. Now, as a system, all this stuff I'm talking about is kind of untested. I spent a summer with a couple hives. But I think if this all comes together, it's, it's going to be put to the test. I think it's going to net out. It goes back to the car analogy. Good bones. So I've covered a lot of ground there, but I think there's a couple other things that I, I want to get out, get on my mind. It's about the dynamic of nuke boxes in general or some of the other utility. 
Something I learned from Bob Kloss as he relates to nuke boxes. He tends to maintain more nukes in his yard than I do, and so he shared some of his observations over the years. He said to me that five-frame nukes tend to build less drone comb. In contrast, if you give a colony 10 frames, they build the colony through the chimney, and the outside frames are open, and you know what they put in there? Drones. So it seems, by observation, that a five-frame doesn't have those extraneous frames. They build less drone comb. What is drone comb? By conventional wisdom, it's a contributor to a mite problem because the mites like to hang in the drone. And also, we don't particularly like, we like drones, of course. You want to have drones in your apiary and in your yard and all of that, especially if you have good stock and you're trying to reproduce in the neighborhood. But you don't want an overabundance of it. So Bob came to that observation a while ago and he shared it with me. And over the last few seasons while playing with nukes, I've, I've come to agree with him. I plan to put that into an interesting use. Now, it's not that nukes don't build drone comb. They just build less of it. What if I, in my six-frame format, went back to the practice, uh, something I've gotten away from, of using drone brood frames for varroa management? I'm going to experiment with giving each of the six over six over six brood chambers a drone brood frame when establishing them. And my hope is that if I get back into culling drones, they'll build it in that single frame and the rest of the hive will be neat and tidy with worker comb, good quality worker comb. My hope is that they'll constrain any of the brood to the green frame the way I want it. And then I could cull that and keep the varroa mite infestations from the drone at bay. I, that's a perfect, rosy, wonderful scenario. But you know what? It's, it's worth giving a try, especially if it helps me in the fight of Varroa management. Now, I said on the outset of this that the people who provided the hive actually built it as a nuke with the added benefit of being a queen castle. That's what the manufacturer probably intended these things to be used. The six-frame nuke is a nice-sized nuke. The one thing that I have found is feeding it can be problematic. You have to buy their feeder. And I already had five-frame feeders. So in one episode, I talked about I built a shim that sits over top of the hive, and my five-frame feeder sits on that. You cannot, unlike the ten-frame equipment, put a five-frame nuke on the box to clear that up if you're not sure what I'm talking about. In the 10-frame polystyrene box for B-Box, you could take a conventional wooden box and put it in the middle of the stack and it mates up fine. If you take a 5-frame nuke and put it on a 6-frame box, it doesn't mate. It leaves a gap and it doesn't work. So you have to use 6-frame with 6-frame. Woodenware is not interchangeable. Upside or downside of this, the equipment fits the bill. Um, the first time I purchased these boxes, I actually was doing queen rearing, and I used them as queen castles. 
They have a center channel right through the middle of the box, engineered in, with a divider. And the entrance on the bottom board has an entrance to the front on the left and the back on the right. When the divider is in, you can open both of them and they operate as separate colonies in two separate colonies inside one box. Now the way that I did it when we were doing queen rearing is I put a queen in one side and queen in the other side with some bees that I sourced. And then when it got big enough, I pulled the three frame out and put it in another six frame box that was open to six frames and supplied them with some frames and let them build out. With the queen castle that had the divider in it, I pulled three frames out, I pulled the divider out, and I gave that one three frames. Now what I had is two six-frame nukes. Those two six-frame nukes built out six frames. I put another six-frame box on it. I did not have to, like a five-frame nuke, take five frames out and put it in a ten-frame box. It's all the same equipment. So it graduated from three-frame to six-frame to twelve-frame to eighteen-frame over the course of a summer. It's perfect. It was perfect. I, I, I like the way that it graduates. And next year when I want to do splits, if my 6 over 6 over 6 grows so big in the spring, I can literally do almost like a walkaway split by just popping one of the boxes over, put it on a bottom board, give it a roof, and I have a nuke. Six frames. Perfect. It has enough population inside an insulated chamber to survive early spring for those cold days that come and things like that. So I, from a, from a up or down scale thing, I, I can't think of a better way to go. If I think about it, if I were starting out at an operation with all six frame equipment, that's all I'd have to have. As it is to woodenware, I have 10 frame, 8 frame, 10 frame queen castles, five-frame nukes, five-frame mating nukes, and other equipment, all Langstroth format. In the six-frame box, that's all I need. That's enticing enough to say this is, should switch over and possibly make this an easier operation. So where does it go from here? Yeah, can you do full-size beekeeping in a six-frame box? in six frame equipment. I mean, there are some cons. They can become crowded very quickly. If you don't pay attention, they can swarm. And I think you probably lose the ability for certain management techs, techniques, like, you know, sometimes we pyramid up to improve space for the brood chamber to grow. And Walt Wright talks about checkerboarding, which breaks up the honey dome so that the bees feel like they have space to move up. But in a six-frame configuration, there's not as much room. And ultimately, this means more management and oversight of critical junctures. And you got to stay prepared. <laughs> got to stay ahead of swarm control with splits or whatever you're going to do to relieve that pressure of crowding and congestion and swarm triggers. I have a Kevin moment. If you're thinking Darwinium, a la Tom Seeley. Maybe you just let them swarm. I, I don't know that that goes against conventional wisdom, but depending on where you're at, possibly that's an option. End of Kevin moment. 
For any con, there are tons of pros. I think the full-size colony in a six-frame equipment is interesting. It optimizes the chimney observation that I spoke of. In practice, three boxes is only two frames short of a full hive, which nets out to a reasonable workforce for the colony to live in for the brood chamber. Add the fourth box, perfect for honey production. I think it's right size for a hobbyist colony. The weight, perfect for my back, for my back health. Insulation, heat, bees do not heat the hive, but bees use the heat to drive how they keep the cluster warm. And if the external force on them is cooler by n number of degrees, because they're in poorly insulated hives, it requires them to expend more energy to maintain the cluster, and all that goes away with a polyhive. Stability. If the ambient temperature remains more stable, due to the insulative qualities of poly, that has to help matters. Moisture. Not talked a lot about this. I think in time, we will come to discover that those who are ventilating hives on the top Maybe going in the wrong direction. I always come back to a bee tree doesn't have ventilation. It has a single entrance and the bees control the airflow in and out. And in certain things that I've been reading and studying over time, and maybe that's because I have an interest and I'm skewed to look that way, but I really feel like the more we close our hives up, the more we give the opportunity for the bees to control the environment. And then the bees decide how wet, moist it is. And with the insulation envelope on the top, on the sides, on the bottom, there's not large fluctuations of temperature change. And from that perspective, moisture is not going to condense and form drops if the bees can control the humidity inside the hive. There's also some suggestions that high humidity is good inside of a colony. And that Varroa mite don't like high humidity, and if the bees had the opportunity to control the colony inside and maintain higher moisture, they would do that. And our hives being ventilated, that's not helping the situation. In this case, the hive is sealed on the top, and the only air movement's going out that entrance, and they're in complete control, positive or negative, of the environment inside in the envelope. Net-net, I feel like there's one factor that doesn't get talked about and it has to do with stress. I think in a more stable environment it's going to be less stressful for the colony. I sometimes speak of the yin and yang of how the weather is cold and it's hot. Now it's cold. In the succession of spring here in New Jersey, I think, again, stability leads to better colony growth in the spring. I've seen that with my own hives in my 10 frame, and I'm hoping it translates well in the 6 frame. I want to open the box in March and April and see every frame covered. Experience will lighten the way. 
I made that up to sound prophetic, but what I can share is that in this journey I'm started on, I'm interested to find a path to a better management practice through six-frame polystyrene nukes. Here's to hoping it works out. And I have on my mind to seek out a couple people. I've reached out to two or three that I know keep bees in polystyrene, and they've been doing it for a while. And if things turn out well, then the next couple episodes, I may be able to bring some folks in who have far more experience than me and see what their take on it is. And like you, I plan to learn and ask them questions and see if I can shortcut my learning by asking those who have real world experience with dozens of hives. So we'll see how that pans out. I have two uh, prospects out there. And I think both of them have said they were interested in coming into the show. So uh, the only thing is finding time to get connected with them and do the production. But um, I think that's in the future. So just hang tight if you still have an interest in this topic. I didn't kill it for you. <laughs> we'll see. The local hive report. Yeah, I'm going to sneak one in here for this episode. Not a ton of stuff to talk about, but I did want to discuss um, something real quickly. I made mention in the last episode that I try to clean my hives out and make sure that they do not have honey, any vestiges of food in them. I had an eight frame box that I went to move to go away for the poly <laughs> comb in it. And damn if the mice didn't find a way in there and eat all the corners out where there was residual honey. I typically take that stuff and put it outside and let the uh, bees clean out, as I said before. But, you know, this week I read something interesting. When you have a hive, I'm not saying the hive was a dead out, but when you have a hive that's a dead out, you would think as long as there's no active varroa in there then, and there was no bee disease like European fowlbrood and all of that, that the hive would be okay. What I learned is it's possible that deformed wing virus or some of the viruses are actually in the comb and substrate and that it could live there for a long period of time. And that's all the more reason why you should not leave your hives out to be robbed. That's something new. I'm going to study more on that, but I thought I would share that. And then lo and behold, I mentioned about leaving honey in the boxes and the mice chewed in. There's, I had sitting on a bench in the garage and I went to go get it today and there's a wax flakes all over. There was a 65 degree day on Thanksgiving. It was unusually warm this year. Thanksgiving for us in the U.S. was this past Thursday. Um, Wednesday, Thursday, it was warm. I went out and looked at the hives. I was astonished how much they were flying. And at one point I looked at the polystyrene hive and I know the population from being in that hive not too long ago was huge. It looked like it was swarming. The bees were out doing cleansing flights, and there was just this massive frenzy for a period of time. Now, that happened to be the moment that I walked out there. I went back to the house to get my cart and do something, and when I came back, all the hubbub was relieved. I spent some time on that day taking feeders off of the hives. I figure, you know, I had top feeders on all of them and I never got a chance to break them down. 
I run my inner covers on my Langstroth hive with two inch insulation. And I like to put them right down. I learned this from John Gott, right down on the inner cover. If you have a feeder in there, that's not accomplishing the insulative cover on the top of the hive. And I had a Man Lake top feeder on. So systematically across the polys and across my Langstroth hive and even my top bar hive, I had feeders on top for late feeding and I removed all of them. And I put the strap all the way around. So literally the last, last thing I have to do is take the polystyrene hive off of the metal stand and move it to pad number three. And then I'll have seven hives in full operation. Now, some of them are six frames. They're not full-size colonies, but um, I noticed all the hives were flying except for the lands. I was kind of surprised because every time I go out there, the lands hive looks like it's doing really well. I see a lot of activity coming and going. I can look in the entrance and see the bees guarding the entrance and all that. All the colonies were flying except for the lands. I have a thought about that. In the cooler temperatures where that box has two inch thick wood, it's insulated inside. Maybe I missed that flight period where they did cleaning, cleansing flights. And maybe they're just dormant and happy in there. I don't know. I did look in the top covers of the top bar hive when I took the feeders off. To give you a sense of how big my top bar hive is, if you took a conventional Langstroth inner cover and you set them side by side, that's how wide the hive is. Originally it was three Langstroth inner covers and I cut it back to make it two. When I took the feeders off I could see down in the hole of the inner covers. By the way, I should mention, my top bar hive is a custom one. I made it. And the length of the width is the same as a Langstroth box. It has Langstroth Kelly F-frames in the top. So a top bar or a top inner cover, top inner cover, that's a contradiction. An inner cover from a Langstroth box fits perfectly down over it. And then the roof sits down and nests over those and the roof is insulated. It too has two inches of foam in it. So I wanted to get that roof down over the inner covers. Back to the point when I looked in the colony, the colony is clustered over the left side of the hive when standing behind it. When I look through the hole, I see nothing but a mass of bees on the left inner cover. When I look through the right one, I see nothing. I had a moment of clarity there thinking, I let that hive build out, I think it's 22 frames in total, out to about the 18th, that's where I saw it, about the 18th frame. And the last bunch of frames I was hoping to feed it and have it fill out honey in the far end. I don't know if they did that. I didn't check it late in the season. I have a follower board at about the 20th frame. I'm thinking to myself that if I get some freak, unique, warm day, I might pop that inner cover off on the right side and look to see where the colony ends. And if there's nothing to the right of the colony, take the follower board and move it over and constrain the space. I probably should have done it on that warm day, but I was trying to focus on getting all the feeders off and stay on task. Do I think having the whole chamber open is going to be a problem? No, 
because I put two inch XPS foam insulation on all the sides on the ends and over the roof and the bottom. So, you know, again, they don't heat the inside of the hive. So I think they're probably going to be okay, but it could have helped them a little bit to have that over there. So who knows? If I move the box that's sitting on the metal stand to hive three, then I only have one literal action to go for the rest of the year. And I'm still trying to make this decision about whether I want to do oxalic acid on Christmas and New Year's Day between that window or whether I wait till spring. Someone wrote in and gave me a really good point. And I think I could speak out of both sides of my mouth. So this is what I'm thinking. The first one is, if you could zap the mites now, the colony building or maintaining until spring should be better for it. If you wait till spring and the mites are in there, anything that the mites could do to the bees from now until spring would make them sicker. Why not clean it up now? On the other hand, if you get a warm day and you do an oxalic acid treatment, do you harm the bees? Because sometimes it can be, from my understanding, a little harsh on them. Which one is better? <laughs> bees living with mites and possibly getting sick or zapping them with oxalic acid and possibly damaging the cluster in some way? I don't have a lot of practical experience doing it in November. Conventional wisdom is do it early. And that's where I think I'm leaning. I think I am going to do oxalic acid vaporizations, three treatments, five days apart, starting Christmas Day and through that break that I have, my Christmas break from work, which is not 15 days, but thereabouts. So that's my current wisdom. Just curious if you have any experience with that and you yell at me and say, don't do this or do that. You should do it. Whatever. Kevin at bkcorner.org is my email address. So local hive report from the outside, they look very strong. All my colonies, they look like they're in good shape. I'm not sure what was up with the laying side, but the rest of them look as good as I would hope. You know, I'm always cautiously optimistic but we'll see what spring brings. I'm truly interested to find out how the polys. I, I made a trip to Bob Kloss's the other day. I brought him a polystyrene hive, one that I had. And he had this colony that he took out of somewhere, and it, it was comb that was cut out, and it was supported in the frame through band-aids. <laughs> I think he had rubber bands and whatever tying him up. The comb wasn't even contiguous from bar to bar. That's how hacked this was in putting it together. And the colony was not that big. In the supreme experience for the poly equipment, if that dink hive was ever going to make it, it would make it in the poly. So we gave him a poly hive and we're going to experiment to see whether we could nurse that colony through. That should be an interesting uh, testimonial if they do make it. If they don't make it, it's probably no surprise because honestly... It's probably two or maybe, uh, this is being generous, three frames at best in a five-frame nuke, and we put them in a six-frame poly. And they don't have contiguous comb to stay warm and cluster on. There wasn't a lot of food, so it needs to be fed. 
Yeah, it was a dink. But we'll see. We'll see how that works. So that's interesting to see where that nets out. So local hive report, I'm as happy as can be. Now all I have to do is clean up all the, the feeders and other things that I brought back to the garage and do that final push to get the garage in good shape and then turn to my winter projects. Local hive report, check. Things are in good shape. We have reached the end of another episode. For closing comments, don't really have that much to share. One of the things I've been doing lately is just trying to find online meetings, keep myself occupied and interested in different beekeeping topics. Um, listen to something the other day about how to manage aggressive bees. And it brought me right back to uh, the euthanization hive video. I thought that was interesting. Uh, looking forward to, you know, whatever happens. And just took a survey about EAS. It sounds like it's going to be tenuous as to whether EAS can be in person this year or not. I think what would be interesting for EAS is if they had their speakers, but somewhere in between they did something like had someone do one-on-one -on -one with vendors. Because... Part of the support of the show, as I've said before, uh, Eastern Apiculture, American Beekeepers Federation, or whatever those things are, is going into the vending areas and see what's there. And I can imagine small five-minute vignettes where you do a showcase on a product. Somebody brings out, you know, XYZ product, the high butler I've talked about on the podcast, and you do a short interview and somebody walks you through the features of them. I could imagine you could put together 20 to 30 of them about different products in a beekeeping catalog, let the different vendors have different say in it, and then in between sessions where you have a 15-minute break, play those. I think that would be a neat addition to an online topic, for example, where you have nothing but speakers coming in and talking about specific things. I'd also like to see them do live demos of things like making lip balm or candles or uh, different things. So, you know, I, I have no idea what's going to happen with uh, any of these conferences or anything that's going on where state, you know, New Jersey Beekeepers Association wants to have a big meeting at the end of the year. How do they make the topics fill out and not just have what we're seeing every day with different Zoom people presenting this would be a different aspect of it. So if you're listening out there and you're thinking of ideas, maybe you could incorporate a couple of those. Wouldn't be too hard to put together. It's a thought of the day. Okay, time to wrap things up. Thanks for stopping by. I appreciate uh, all the feedback. I would say to you, if you would do me a favor, go rate us on a podcast app. I don't care if you use Stitcher or whatever. Um, it really helps to add a comment because the comments help people find the show, especially iTunes comments. Pro or con, that's okay with me too. I'd like to get all the feedback. Write me in at kevin at bkcorner.org. You can leave a comment on my website, which is www.bkcorner.org. I'm not sure that everybody knows this, but if you go to all of our episodes, we have a full timeline of the show. What was discussed at what time frame? Uh, lately, some of the topics have been a lot longer, but when we get back to more conventional broken up stuff, those timelines, table of contents, so to speak, really help. 
And again, if you are so kind, I would appreciate if you could leave a comment. I also have to say to anyone that has donated to the show, thank you. I truly appreciate any of the PayPal donations we get. Pay for all this out of pocket. I don't do any advertising or whatever. And, you know, it's always appreciative. Most of the time, I don't think it's more about paying for the show, but just showing appreciation for the effort put in. And I do honestly um, feel the sentiment when people say they appreciate the show and they write me in on that. That that goes a long way. So thanks for that, for all that do that. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. <laughs>